0: base I think when you have those opportunities dig in and if you come out on the other side or if you fail three or four times and you keep pushing keep figuring it out I think you end up on the other side of that with a lot of confidence and character
1: hello everybody and welcome back to the mentors podcast today we have on George Foreman the third george is the founder of Everybody Fights a professional boxer trainer coach and son of businessman and two-time heavyweight champion, George Foreman. George has worked hard and fought all of his life as an athlete and now as an entrepreneur. He embraces the concept in life that everybody fights. And through his gym, his mission is to make you the best fighter you can be, in the ring and in life. George taught me some incredible lessons and shared fascinating stories about his journey and how he started. And I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mentors. Today we have on George Foreman III. George, thank you so much for being on.
0: Thank you. Glad to be with you.
1: Wonderful. You know, when it comes down to my guests, I always love going down to the origin story. So you can start as far back as you'd like. But, you know, where did you come from and how did you grow up the way you did?
0: You know, I'm from Houston, Texas. Um originally and um, I mean, my life is very, 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 very much connected with um, my father, um, kind of, you know, I, I, as a student, when um, I talk about that as a student, I was kind of geeky and nerdy, um, did okay in math, did excellent in science, and um, typically did really good at anything I was interested in, I always got A's, but you know, everything else was kind of a struggle for it. I mean, even when I got an A, it was a struggle if I didn't have interest quiet kid, shy kid, asked a lot of questions. And, um, that was pretty like much me. I like to eat a lot too, you know, um, as it relates to like things I did outside of being a nerd, um, was working for my dad and, uh, you know, for us, like you're never too young to work. So, you know, between the ages of, you know, at all times we had, we grew up working on a ranch, um, when I was old enough, got got a chance to appear in, you know, multiple commercials for brands like Doritos, uh, Oscar Mayer, Meineke uh, Park Center, uh, HBO, um, and, and, and a few others. And got a chance to be on TV shows, got a chance to be in the news, got a chance to be in People Magazine, and so on and so forth, just by virtue of just I and my dad's son, you know? They're featuring him, and he was always, you know, he always talked about his family a lot in the press. Uh, he was a professional boxer um, in the 60s, the 70s, 60s and 70s, become world champion, retired and, in the late 70s, became a minister, preacher. Um, and that's the guy I grew up with. I was born in 83. Um, and then in the late 80s, right around the time I was like seven-ish, he uh, decided to mount a comeback to the sport. And it was a really high-profile comeback because he pretty much went out on top. and he came back at the bottom and just didn't apologize for it and was overweight. And, you know, it was kind of like, you know, a sports legend, i.e. Muhammad Ali. After his legend is gone and, you know, people are talking about him and, you know, he shows up at events, and everybody's like, oh, my God, the legend is here. Like, he already had all that. And then he went back and said, I'm going to be just like everybody else and start from the bottom. And uh, so it was really awkward and weird for not just him, but uh, the whole family, you know, seeing him. Sports reporters say really bad stuff about him, Um, but he was able to you know mount a pretty good comeback in the early 90s, and went on to gain his championship again about I think about eight years after that. Um, So you know at that point he became so popular that me you know once again always working in training camps at my dad's hip, helping him prepare for whatever, stretching him, counting his rounds, filming his sparring matches, sparring in the gym, preparing for his boxing matches um although i did that i had other stuff i wanted to do um so when i was 12 i asked my dad if i could go to boarding school and he agreed and he actually took me to boarding school um flew me up here to boston we found a place and i did that because that would allow me to play three sports and no one would have to take me you know take me to the game and pick me up um participate in extracurricular activities participate in student government and go on field trips, and rafting, and the list goes on, all the opportunities I got. At home, my parents were hands-on with gifts, but there's are journalists. Plus, you know, uh, a major celebrity career in the household, which is, most people don't understand, like a major celebrity, it, you know, it's kind of like running a big business, you know? There's a lot that has to get done to, just to get the celebrity to kind of be able to show up and do what they need to do. So. Um, just not enough hands going around for 10 kids and a, and a major celebrity. So, but, um, but he was, I was always with him. So it wasn't like we had a bad childhood. We had an awesome childhood. It was like literally, we call him Mother Hen. Um, but in terms of all of us having extracurricular activities, that was just not feasible unless we were all going to have our own babysitter, you know? So, um, that, which is why I, I embraced going to boarding school and, and had a great time. So I did that. And, um, Went to a place called Faith School for three years. Then I tran or not transferred. Didn't go that ninth grade. So I graduated and went to a school called Governor Dummer on the North Shore of Boston. And um, after a year there, wanted to become a pilot. Had interest in flying planes, and I found the only school in in the world I think boarding school that I had an airport was um, Culver Military Academy. So um, I went there for a summer program, loved it, called my dad midway through the summer and asked him if I could stay for winter school. And um, he agreed. He thought I was crazy once again. Because remember, I was the years ago, you know, years before that, I was 11 and I wanted to go to boarding school, which is often, I might be the only kid that ever did that. And, um, and he said, yeah, you can go. So I made my way to Culver. Um, found out, you know, during a recruiting program between my 11th and 12th grade year at the Air Force Academy that I wouldn't make, I wouldn't be able to fly the planes I wanted to fly because of my sitting height, um, or at least I wouldn't be first in line to fly them. And so that kind of deflated me and I think selfishly because I couldn't fly the planes I wanted to fly. I, um, decided not to go to the military academy. I, I regret that sometimes. Um, and so I went to Pepperdine University and so said, let me just, you know, for once, be a regular student and not have a you know a strict regimen, and um, studied business while I was there. And uh, midway through that that experience, um, I got an opportunity to work for my father full time as his business manager. So I moved back to Houston, transferred to Rice University in uh, Houston. Uh, they didn't have a business major, but they had a great you know it was a great great school. Was, to me, one of the best schools in Houston and so i went even though they didn't have a business major and i just changed my major to kinesiology with a focus in sports marketing Um, now sports business is a full major Um, so um but at the time it was like brand new so anyway did that graduated um continued to work for my father and working for him i did everything from you know license working licensing deals Representing him as an author, as talent for TV shows, movies, um, endorsements, everything from clothing to shoes to watches to grills. He would already done that deal by the time I came into the, the picture. But I would work on uh, contract extensions, traveling with him, um, approving scripts for uh, infomercials, approving media tours, et cetera, et cetera, uh, booking him for shows like Jimmy Kim- Jimmy Kimmel or Jay Leno at the time, David Letterman, and the list goes on, so my, my life was pretty busy and um, loved it. And uh, partway through that experience, kind of say living high on the hog, I was, um, you know, my, my life was spent in hotels, eating room service, and flying around on private jets, which was <laughs> awesome, <laughs> and I would love to go back to it, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> but the, I, ga- I gained a lot of weight and uh, got into boxing as a way to lose some weight. And got so interested in it that I wanted to see what a real fight would be like. And I had the bet going with my brothers. They said I wouldn't do it. And I told my dad I was going to have this amateur fight, and he said, well, let me train you. And somewhere along, you know, there's a long story there, but the point is he encouraged me to have a professional fight because I wouldn't have to worry about the amateur pulling out last minute, right? Mm-hmm. The amateurs don't get paid. Um, and so had a professional fight. wasn't a tough one at all. And... um And then after that, you know, me and him, I put so much work into it. He had trained me. I trained for a year before he agreed to train me, and then we trained for another year. And we put in so much work. Pretty, some of the hardest work I've ever done in my life. Like, where I thought a couple of times I thought I was just gonna die. (laughs) And um, he decided, we just both decided, like, let's keep doing this, it'll be fun. um, Without really talking about it, you know? And I ended up having 15 professional fights. And um, while I was training to be a pro fighter, I was um, also training people at my youth center, my dad's youth center, um, to box a few hours before and after I would train that year, I mean that day, and developed a passion for it. And so on a trip to Boston, I was um, visiting one of my friends from that original boarding school I mentioned, and I um, he gave me the idea to open a boxing gym in Boston. which so I thought that would be cool. And, uh, you know, ended up just staying and doing it. And so today I have, you know, Everybody Fights, Boxing Gyms. Um, We focus on a lot more than boxing, but we're known for our boxing component. We have six locations. We opened in 2014, so we're about six years in almost. And um, we're on our our way to going to another 10 locations next year, and hopefully within three or four years, maybe 40, 50 locations. (laughs)
1: Well, that's phenomenal. Again, you have quite, uh, you have quite a long journey, especially when it comes to your training, especially when it comes to uh, all the ups and downs you had to go through in order to get to where you are today. Uh, one of the things that I found very interesting, because I was at Culver Academy when I first saw you, when I first saw you speak, and I was absolutely fascinated by the fact of just the sheer uh, endurance and the sheer uh, willpower you had to have in the first training sessions with your dad must have been grueling. How, what was the mentality you had going into that and how did you find your way out?
0: Um, you mean find my way out on the training side?
1: Yeah, I because looking at some of the, looking at some of the regimens you guys did, I know a lot of people yeah. who would have just quit on the spot, said I'm not pulling that car, I'm not carrying these logs, I'm you're not saying how to,
0: saying, is you said so you're asking how did I mentally get through it?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you know, I just, um, I just, I don't know why I had this, this. I think quitting, how people people say, don't quit, you know, That's, you know, you've heard that before, and I think, you know, times are changing and the definition of what it means to quit changes, you know. Um, for instance, you know, there was a time where in order to move up in a company, you would have to work for. <laughs> you know, work for wages that people would laugh at now. And you would have, you know, you might work at a company for five to six years just to get benefits and this and that. And and the goal was, if you were ever going to be anything, you have to stay at one company for maybe 15, 20 years to make anything out of yourself. Um The opportunities to work for entrepreneurial companies that are popping up left and right because of the, the opportunities tech has, uh, has brought, the barriers tech has removed. Um, and other things I've removed um, those did not always exist you know so to just bounce around to three or four jobs until you find the right fit you might never get anywhere in life right so this idea of quitting sometimes that meant you might have to do something you hated for ten years don't quit don't quit don't quit in order to get where you want for the rest of your life and quitting would have meant quitting would have meant I hate what I'm doing but I'm going to keep doing it anyway I'm miserable but I'm going to keep doing it anyway quitting would have been not doing that we're saying I don't want to be miserable. I don't care that I'm not going to be anything in life. I quit, you know, Um, because now we live in a time where sometimes quitting is the right thing to do. And what I mean by that is cutting your losses, finding out why you're miserable. Is it you or is it the position you put yourself in and moving on, you know, Um, cutting your losses while you can and and trying to, you know, keep tweaking and optimizing where you put your efforts. because there's so many opportunities out there to be able to follow your passion and make make a living you know um so that's that and then lastly defining quitting i think there's a time when you know if you weren't on if you weren't on the path or, or or be aggressively trying to have a car own a home own a home own a car um have a credit card and have a nuclear family you know if you weren't doing all those things you had now quit on life you know and now we're getting to the point where it doesn't even make sense financially, for for some people, it depends on where you live, to own a home, um, especially if you live in the city. Um, it doesn't really make sense to own a vacation home when you can use Airbnb, you know? It doesn't make financial sense, it makes conveniences. It doesn't make sense to own a car. It's better to lease it, you know? Especially depending on the model and, you know? And so on and so forth. All these things have changed. Families, the way, like, having five kids versus two, like, it's all different. And so deciding that that's not the life for you doesn't mean you quit, you know? So going back to your question, what was I thinking about when <laughs> my my dad had me pulling a lawnmower, I mean, uh, what was that? More almost like a Jeep through the mud, chopping uh, wood where I was going to pass out, like what got me through? And I think it was because when you're doing something as simple as hard labor and you have a task and the only goal is to complete the task the only goal. The goal is not to be happy. And furthermore, that goal is complete the task and you're going to be stronger for it. In the end, it's a task. It's not like a career, you know? Uh, (laughs) Chopping wood is not a career. It's a task. It's a task to strengthen your body, develop mental strength, mental clarity, being able to respond with strength under pressure, um, digging holes, sprinting, running 10 miles. That's what all that's for. The goal is be mentally stronger and tough by finishing the task, if you quit, I feel like you get weaker, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it was important that when we were training that I didn't over, uh, you know, set goals that that were dangerous, you know? And it was my dad's job to set the goals and somehow he was able to set those goals where, you know, I might pass out, but I'd be okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But they were just like to the brink of, you know, unconscious. But, but in, in hindsight, the mental strength that I've been able to take into my life and my career from those tasks, which are simple tasks, I did, there was no boss. There was no, you know, it's not like other things in life. There's no like girlfriend or husband on the other side of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, these are just mental, t- simple tasks to develop mental strength. I knew if I quit that it was, it was kind of going to make me weaker in a way that was going to be hard to fix, you know? um because yeah. it was it was it would be in my brain and in my soul so i think that's what got me through it just always knowing like hey i'm either gonna get stronger or i'm gonna get weaker stronger or weaker stronger or weaker um but it's important that i define talk about defining what quit means because i don't want people to take that out of context and think they should apply that to their career and their personal life because there's so much more that goes into when you need to hang it up in, in your professional and personal life
1: oh definitely and even when you were talking about you know, goal setting. You're like, the goals weren't so extreme that I couldn't complete them or I'd get hurt in the process of completing them, but they were they were tough enough where, you know, I really had to push hard and make that effort. Did you ever, yeah. do? You, have you found yourself in that balance um, in your day to day where you can have those goals every day where you're like, okay, this pushes me, but it's not an overkill? Well,
0: you know, the the, the tough thing in my day to day, it's not about really whether something's challenging me too much, you know, um, where whether it's overkill. Um, it's more about, you know, because I keep, I, I'm not passing out, you know, <laughs> so like mentally I have the strength to like kind of push past anything. And especially doubt, self doubt is the hardest one to push back past because sometimes it creeps in at the most awkward times, you know, like you might be fully, fully, you know, ready to start a business. You've hired seven people. I'm sorry, you've already started the business, you've hired seven people, you've raised two million dollars, and then you're like, what am I doing? Self-doubt, you know? So it manifests itself in different ways, you know, these challenges. Um, So yeah, I receive them, but it's more about not, it's just going to push me physically, mentally past my limits? I don't think it can. Anything can, really. But is it going to push my lifestyle past the limits of... A place where I could be happy. And, you know, I think when you're by yourself and you're single and there's no one that is going to, you know, be heard or benefit from the decision, that's one thing. But when you have employees, you know, that you're risking their livelihood, right? And it, it, risking their happiness, and you have a family. Um, I have definitely been faced with challenges where I have to ask myself am I going to put my relationships, friends, family under undue stress? Um, That, that they're not aligned to benefit from the way I am, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the outcome. So that, that's really the challenge to, to, to not be selfish because you may have the energy and the wherewithal to push past these challenges, um, that are placed in front of you professionally, for instance. Um, but then you do it and you look up, you don't have a, a husband, a wife, a friend, coworkers, you know, because you did it and you're successful and everything and you wiped out everybody. In the process, so I think that's really the challenge.
1: Sometimes, yeah, I mean, especially when you know you have that fighter mentality. A lot of times when you fight, you know, it's just you against one person, one opponent. Um, But you're fighting for much more than that. You know, you're fighting for your family or or your team members. How do you how do you keep that all into a balance? Like how you know in those situations, what's the opponent? How do you make sure you can tackle that um, while keeping you know everyone else safe?
0: Um. Um, you, you mean in, in, in a business in a business uh, sense or you can you explain that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, um, in a business sense of you know what something might happen with uh, budgeting or something might happen mm-hmm. with you know when you know something might fall through in the business, how do you make sure mm-hmm. you can take care of yourself fight the problem and be that leader um, because mm-hmm. you know you are the, you are the leader in your company in order to yeah. you know making sure everyone else is okay and even in the family sense, yeah. You know, like my, yeah. Like my like my daddy's a father, and when we had to move, right, he was really scared because he's like, I can't be selfish, but I got to take care, and I have to take care of my family. But you know, we have to do this one thing. How is everything going to be safe?
0: Yeah, I think it's two things. I think you, I think you en- enlist the support of, of people as much as you can. You can't tell everybody everything all the time, you know. But you enlist enlist them in, in the process, um, and you know, I think you balance. Putting them first and, you know, really clearly defining what that means. I, I, I always go back to defining what that means, you know? Defining what, what whatever the standard is, defining what it means. And so, you know, thinking of your employees, you put them first and you're like, you know what, we're gonna have to do something like we're gonna have to lower wages for instance, lower salaries for eight months, right? So if right off the bat, if you're like, Man, put your employees first, well, okay, I have to lower my salary too. But then there's also like, shh, is there a way not to? They're first. Why not? How about we keep their salaries the same or maybe we raise them? But then if you bring them all to the table and say, hey guys, we need to invest in a specific technology that's going to increase our profitability and competitive advantage over the next seven years. And but it's gonna require that the budget's gotta come from somewhere. Everyone's gonna to have to take a seven thousand dollar a year pay cut, right? For the next, you know, on an annual basis for the next eight or nine months or the next twelve months. But on the other side of this is we're going to increase our profit profitability by eight to 9% and that's going to increase the payback to our investors, uh, the speed by two to three years, which means number one, we can all make more money and get our bonuses at the end of the year and they'll be bigger two years from now. Number two, um, if we have an exit, everybody will get a bigger share in the exit. I'm just making up a, a scenario, you know? And so you put that in front of them and say, hey, this may or may not work. But the only reason I would reduce everybody's salaries right now is because it's going to be a bigger win for us. And if I don't, I'm going to have to look at myself in the mirror three years from now and know I didn't do the best thing for you guys, or at least I didn't give you the option. And so I think you kind of have to start off by putting them first, defining what that is. And then lastly, I think it's really important when it involves other people to set a a time, set parameters or, or let them know like, hey, this will only be for a time. And make sure that for yourself and them to, that you know when you're when you're have, asking everybody to sacrifice and suck it up, there's um, there's some limits and some, and some time stamps that they can be looking forward to. This is only going to be for a time, and it's also important that you know that, so that that makes you hold yourself accountable and keep yourself honest to make sure, hey, I'm asking everybody to sacrifice. I'm the leader. I'll sacrifice everything. I'll sacrifice my entire salary, but that's not. They shouldn't they shouldn't you know carry that thing, that whole load themselves and I got to figure this out within a year or two years or six months and I think that goes for family and everything if you're a leader it's the type of responsibility I to take
1: yeah when you know when it comes down to things like leadership and you know you're talking about you know you're talking about uh, authenticity and, and responsibility those are some really big character traits um, and building character is one heck of a thing sometimes. How have you found yourself building character in yourself and others?
0: Um, I think the biggest thing is um, building characters, putting people in tough situations and letting them crawl their, crawl, just crawl their way out of it. But I think <laughs> we're you can't, you can't throw them into the fire without giving them uh, fair preparation. And I think fair preparation is number one, allowing them to see you do it a number of times. Number two, explaining to them why you do everything you do, why you respond to conflict the way you do, right? Because life is just about navigating conflicts. And then thirdly, giving them a chance to do it upon, with your supervision, a little bit. So you can jump in at teachable moments, say, oh, well, think about it this way. Well, what if you thought about it this way? And then at some point, you got to pull the cord, cut the cord, let them go. Mm-hmm. Let them make mistakes and, and and try to make sure that you know, you watch them enough to, to, to catch them before they make the same mistake again, teachable moment, um, and then eventually, you know, with enough uh, enough leash and teachable moments, they shouldn't be making the same mistakes over and over. And if they are, they're not the person for the gig. And then you have to have that hard conversation and try to put them somewhere where they excel, um, whether that's with you or with another company and be active in that process. Um, that's how I see helping your people grow with character.
1: Yeah, you know, that's how you can train others. Is, the, is that a similar strategy to how you can train yourself?
0: Mm, I think with yourself, you just play for more than you, you can afford to lose. <laughs> you know, at, at the times when you have that opportunity, you know, like for instance, when I was starting my business and everybody fights, like I was the founder, I was by myself. Um, so if I if I wanted to spend 100 hours and nobody was calling me, nobody was texting me, Um, everybody thought I'd just quit boxing and every, no, everybody knew I wasn't getting checks. So like, there's nothing to really bother me about. (laughs) Right. So, um, they, uh, so I'd sit in the office for about 6am to, about one midnight, no, like 6am to 12. And then I'd be at home and back. And, um, so what's that 20 hours a day? No, 19. Um, and just work on a business plan over and over and over and over and over. And cause I was playing for my whole career. Like if I, you know, that that kept going any, you know that went on for another year longer without any success, I was gonna be homeless. So I think um, playing for more than you're willing to lose that could be putting your last, I put all my money into it. You know, I didn't have millions of dollars put into it but I had many thousands. I put all that into the business and those that was my personal money. But I didn't also, I also didn't have a child, family, a wife, you know, I didn't have employees. So I played for more than I could, I could afford to lose, and I figured it out. And I think it was an extremely stimulating process um, because I was in that situation. The only people that I could align with in growth, which is not my business partner, are people who really brought value and who also made me better. Um, so that was a lesson. But um, But getting through that, the physical activity from boxing definitely helped a lot, by the way. I think everybody can just jump right in and start doing that. Everyone can encourage people from the organizations to get into physical activity um, and to also train as a group. That brings something to your professional prowess, um, like instantly, you know. But in terms of things like career-based, I think when you have those opportunities, dig in. And if you come out on the other side or if you fail three or four times and you keep pushing, keep figuring it out, I think you end up on the other side of that with a lot of confidence. Character.
1: yeah an experience as well. That's actually one of the questions I was um most excited to ask you about. you know in your whole career of boxing and you have a you have a business, everybody fights- uh everybody fights. you know what is a fighter, and what can boxing um teach individuals?
0: Um, a fighter is someone who um, doesn't look forward to conflict but is stimulated by conflict. Mm. And uh, stimulated in a somewhat positive way. You know, they, they, you, the worst of them doesn't come out in conflict. The worst of them, the worst of them comes out in nothing. Like when nothing's going on, <laughs> there's nothing to do. It's kind of like a bored dog puppy. The, the worst of them comes out in um, in stagnancy, or you know, when, the, when there's nothing to do. The best of them comes out when there's work to do, and the very best, the superhuman version of them, comes out when there's an extreme amount of conflict. And um, the fighter is someone who can look back on extreme he- amounts of conflict and kind of smile because whether they came out on the better side of that conflict or not, they kept their character. Um, I think to me that's a fighter. What was your second question?
1: Oh, <laughs> my second question was: is you know what can individuals learn from from boxing?
0: I think what people can learn from boxing is what happens before the fight um, and understanding. I think boxers are some of the, you know, when they when they do it properly, some of the most well conditioned athletes in the world, um, mentally, physically, spiritually, um, when they're training, they always have someone watching and providing correction till, the, till their last day as a legend. They have someone watching them training at all times and say, nope, I saw this, we need to fix this. Mm-mm, that wasn't, that was one inch off. You used to be, you, you know, you used to be six inches away from the punch. Now you're only two. You're a little slower. We need to work on this. When you were young, this worked to get you in shape. Now we have to try something else. When you were young, you could eat this. Now we have to eat something different. They always have someone on top of them, even when they're the considered living legend, helping them correct and tweak till the end of their career. So I think that's what they can learn. And then um, secondly is there's some things that go without saying, like you shouldn't even be talking about being a boxer. I'm talking about boxing right now um, without doing certain things. You got to do your road work. You got to run. That's part of conditioning. You got to do your push-ups, your sit-ups. You have to get sleep. You have to um, be focused. You have to eat properly. You have to hydrate. You have to build strength, endurance. And all these things have nothing to do with throwing a punch. You may not even throw a punch in developing all those things. That's just part of being like, that's, that's like gatekeeper type stuff. Like you shouldn't be let through the gates to even step in the ring and practice the sport. Without those things, and I think being an entrepreneur, a business owner, um, or being a part of a team, being an employee, there's certain things that we should not even have to talk about, you know. So like with my running, my dad, when as a trainer, he was like, "How was your run this morning?" He didn't ask me, "Did you run this morning?" You know. Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> how yeah. long was your how long was your run this morning? How fast did you do it, and not did you run, you know, and so on and so forth. So I think. I think that's the number one thing I think we can pull from is you, you need to establish what, what are the things we need to do just just to be competitive and safe and to respect the, the sport of whatever we're doing, uh, even though it may not be an actual competitive sport. Um, and then number two, um, the other thing you can pull from boxing is sparring. Sparring is, you know, proper sparring, is going over, over and over and over and over again, all your moves. So your jab, that's a strategic move, and you practice it on your sparring partners, you may not throw it 100%, you know, but you throw it 80%. You may not throw it right at their chin and their teeth or their eyes or their nose where you can hurt them, but you throw it to the slight left or the right of their head, so you can throw a lot of them, right? Um, Your defense, you may, instead of beating up your sparring partner because you need need to practice your defense, you may say, you know what, I'm gonna put myself in a position to encourage him to throw as many hooks today as possible. And you practice every trick in the book to block that hook, you know? So this is technique. And you should be always, always practicing your technique, coming up with new techniques, studying, you know, because what works for you, being a tall fighter or a strong fighter or a fast fighter or whatever, may not work for other fighters. Everybody's got to figure out how do they, how do they win technique-wise. Mm-hmm. You have to study, others te- study other people's technique as much as you can so that you can be prepared to compete against them. And then sometimes you may study their technique and say, you know what, I like that, I'm going to use that. But if if for no other reason, even if you're like, I know everything I need to know for myself, you need to know and be prepared for what might be put in front of you. So technique and constantly like studying, studying um, other techniques and also refining your own.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Let's not even talk about technique if we're not doing the road work. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) 100%. The the simple things, you know?
1: well, yeah, you're laying the groundwork. That's where everything comes up. You, you know, when you have that groundwork settled down, you again, I think in entrepreneurialism or I think in life, that that groundwork is always that experience and that mentality, uh, so you can go out and attack the problem. But when it comes to uh, the parallel of sparring and the parallel of studying and watching your opponent, uh, how do you know which punches to throw? How do you know how to go? All right, here's the obstacle. They're doing a lot of you know move X. I should use move. You know a b, or c uh how do you look at that and evaluate and then uh approach the problem
0: yeah it that's, that's, that's actually a really good question i think uh and I hate to just say that it's like one that people don't think about it it to me it's there's many different ways to approach it. some people just focus on what they're doing I like to focus on what others are doing that I may have to compete with or collaborate with mm. um and if you look at boxing as a collaboration right yeah <laughs> um it's like you know, I have to do something that 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 respects what the other person is doing, um, or shows that you know that reflects and some somewhat reflective of what they're doing. If you want to win on a, on the highest level, you know, where people actually have a corner, they have strategies, they have experience, they know how to make adjustments. You got to be really in tune with what they're doing. So, I think it starts with understanding. There's, and you know, I'm talking about extraordinary talent, you know, that you have to fight. There's regular people, regular fighters who just throw punches, and there's extraordinary competitors, okay? So for regular fighters, you just do what you're supposed to do, and that's if you're an extraordinary talent, and you should just run through them. All things being equal, extraordinary talent versus extraordinary talent, what makes this person extraordinary? Is it their conditioning? Is it their speed? Is it the length of their arms? Is it the combinations? Is it the fact that they're really good at letting you throw the first punch first? What is it? So let's just say, for instance, it's their jab. They have an awesome jab, which is just the the closest punches punch to you, and it's very direct. It's long, it's straight, and it doesn't require a lot of commitment to throw it. The jab. I got. If they have a great jab, I shouldn't be focused on shooting my jab. I should be focusing on stopping theirs, figuring out how to make, get them not only to not only to stop it, but get them to stop throwing it. Okay. Okay, now that's that's their number one tool. I figured that out. There's many different ways to do it. I won't get into it. The point is, I shut down the jab. Take that tool away. What other tools do they have in their shed? Oh, this guy has a good um, right hook to the body. Gotta take that away. What am I gonna do to not only stop him from doing it, stop block, but encourage him not to do it anymore, right? Sometimes that's making him throw a bunch of, them. who knows? Number three, um, he might have good footwork. All right, well, I gotta slow his feet down. Typically you do that by beating the core and, um, or just forcing them to use their feet, their resources, right? Um, but the point is, and some people just have a lot of conditioning, they can throw a lot of punches. So it's like, all right, that's your strength. Let's throw a lot of punches. I'm gonna make sure I can survive until you're done throwing all those punches and suck and win. And the minute you get an extraordinary fighter to look up and say, I can't use my tools and I'm exhausted, I'm tired. My resources are, are, are exhausted they become what we call a regular fighter, regular boxer, regular boxer. And when you have an extraordinary talent facing a regular boxer, it's a lot of fun to be (laughs) the extraordinary talent. (laughs) And it becomes easy. So the question is, how do I take an extraordinary talent and and turn them into a regular boxer? And that's by taking their tools away and forcing them to do things that they did not practice. Simplest way to do that, sometimes it's just getting in their ear and frustrating them and talking trash, but the most direct way to do it is to make them tired
1: yeah i can see a lot of parallels with that with um you know many different obstacles in someone's life especially when it comes to like situations uh inside or outside of your control you know uh especially when it comes to like humanizing like humanizing a uh like an elementary example but humanizing a bully like oh he's so big and he's so tough and he's so strong it's like no he's a kid (laughs) he's a kid your age you're gonna be fine and then tapering down that you know—the extraordinary talent of this of this bully who makes fun of you can now become, you know, this regular person. And so you've taken away those those quote unquote tools of them and be like, like you know, what gives you the right to make fun of me, you know? And you can use that at your. And you way. know what? Mm-hmm.
0: And there's there's always there's two ways to look at it, depending on which side of it you are. But like, um, I think there's obvious strengths and advantages, and there's ones that are not as obvious, right? Sometimes the ones that are not as obvious are the most threatening. Um, you, heard of the, what's the, you know the story of David and Goliath? I do. You know, David had like a stone and a sling, a rock. Is that right? He had a rock? Mm-hmm. He threw, is that right? I just can't remember if that was just the cartoons or the actual story. But um, <laughs> the point is, like, you look at Goliath and, you know, David looked at Goliath and said, oh my god, he's a giant and everybody's afraid of him. He's massive, powerful, most nobody's stronger than him, and it's impossible to beat him. The, you know, everybody thinks it's impossible, he's a giant. So everybody else cried, he got scared, and said, what are we gonna do? David said, oh, I have a stone. I'm gonna hit him right in the head, <laughs> you know? That's what David said. He didn't say, oh, this is a giant, I need I need a rock for this. Now the giant looked at David and said, he's a tiny man, I'm, I'm just, um, um, and I'm just gonna crush him. And I had the giant been a little bit more clever, <laughs> and thought you know know, "Ah, maybe why is this guy standing right in front of me like he's going to do something everybody else runs he must have something up his sleeve John could have just turned away and walked away you know and the whole story would have been different but he looked at what he had and looked at David like he was everybody else and he wasn't thinking about the rock and so I think it's all about which, which side of it you're on and just never taking anything for granted you know um that's kind of a hard one to understand but i think you know you know there's a lot of wisdom in that if you, if you know what i mean so.
1: oh definitely i mean i know for a fact that you you grew up uh, working alongside a non so having that gratitude and having that you know that discipline and that worth ethic is going to really come in handy yeah,
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: definitely and actually have you ever been in the situation where you were david or goliath
0: Oh uh, yeah, all the time, all the time. I think I think um, the the reason I love that analogy is because as uh, and you may have heard this when I spoke the other day. I don't bring it up as much, but I brought it up when I was talking. Is that you know in being a leader, um, you are faced with these David and Goliath situations all the time where you know everybody's crying and saying, scared that we have to deal with Goliath. What are we going to do? Let's fold it up. Let's quit. Or let's just keep doing what we're doing and slowly get eaten up. You know, because like hey, we're just going to go down fighting but we don't have like a real we're not actually trying to fight to win we're just fighting just that we fought you know um and i think you know as a leader you have to step up and say hey i got this stone i think i can do something (laughs) you know because sometimes it's literally like there's no way you're going to be a giant right just absolutely impossible because you know in the business world it takes a long time to become a giant but if you know exactly where to nail that giant exactly where to hit the giant and you practice with that stone and you only have to throw it once you're accurate and you know exactly where to throw that thing um you, you can make big things happen and the minute that happens the amount of um confidence and enthusiasm that it that it puts into everybody behind you mm-hmm. um those people that were scared that becomes the giant oh definitely love that.
1: Definitely. And unfortunately we are running a little out of time cause I know you have a hard set at, uh, at two, but George, thank you so much for being on. I thoroughly enjoyed having you on.
0: Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, thanks speaking to you and look forward to, uh, seeing you, uh, develop with your podcast. Congrats.